0: either one of these any good wow this is a good movie it's pretty good well the director from yesterday doesn't think so it stinks you sorry (laughs) you waste all our film
1: it's so bad
0: one of those weeks not only with quantity but plenty of quality this week as well we love those welcome this is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from MadWolf.com. We're going to start with a big one. Sarah Connor is back with a hybrid cyborg human protecting a young girl from a newly modified liquid Terminator from the future. It's Terminator Dark
1: Fate. My name is Sarah Connor. August 29, 1997. It was supposed to be Judgment Day. But I changed the future. Saved three billion lives. Enough of a resume for you? No. You may have changed the future, but you didn't change our fate. Never seen one like you before. Almost human.
0: I am human. Just enhanced.
1: I can see you're very upset. I'm going to help you protect the girl. Nobody else is going to die because of me. If you don't make it, everybody dies. I'll be back.
0: I really lost count of how many Terminators... Well, how many sequels after T2? How many have there been since then? Four, five? Three, I believe. Is that it? Okay. I believe... Well, the good thing is, this new one is easily the best since Terminator 2.
1: Oh, no question. Hands down. And, you know, I think it's funny. um, You know, it didn't get a lot of early, solid buzz. And in watching it, I don't know why that is.
0: I don't either. Because not only did we like it, but I think it's going to be a big crowd pleaser. Uh, I really do. I hope
1: people buy tickets and go. Because it's got enough throwback vibe to it. It's got enough of what's fresh and new, and uh, and it's the director of Deadpool. Right. Director is Tim Miller. So, the action is... I mean, the set piece is just, each one is better than the one before. Yeah, fresh, it seems energized, just with yeah. a different a, a
0: different vibe, because the action in Deadpool was so great. Right. And this, it does build, and it, it also has a solid script, and, and it's surprisingly funny. It is funny. And it has, of course, the nostalgia factor, because you've got Sarah Connor finally back as we deal with this new savior from the fu- future savior that has to has to be protected. This time, uh, she is Dani, and she's a Mexico a Mexico City factory worker yeah. that comes into play in the future. So they sent back, this time it's called a Rev-9, mm-hmm. the latest and greatest, and looks even harder to kill because while well, this machine played by, played by Gabriel Luna was going on, I just kept thinking, well, how are they going to kill it? <laughs> because... <laughs> you know, because, you know, it just keeps, okay, that doesn't work. I mean, they just keep fighting it. And what? how, how are they going to do it? So um, that's what's going on. We, we've seen this before, obviously, the the general premise of protecting these, uh, these people that come into play in the future fight against AI taking over. And then you also have another protector sent from the year 2042, I think they said it was. Uh, and that is Grace. And she's not... A true robot.
1: She is an enhanced human played by Mackenzie Davis who just. You know, you might recognize the face, you might not, but she's always good. She's
0: always good. She was really good in Tully, which not enough people saw. No. Uh, Then she's in that Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah. uh, And some other things. But yeah, and she's really good here. In a collection of badasses, she's one of them, and she's really good.
1: Yes, she is. And it's, you know, and it makes, one of the things I really liked about the film is that it lets all of its characters have an arc. Yes. None of them feel like a stereotype. None of them feel like, you know, a cartoon character. They all... And, and then they all have a great chemistry among the four, and I think that it's it's funny. I think that it's safe to say who the fourth is because he's all over the trailers and the posters. Oh, although. Yeah. We got a Twitter comment today from our good friend Omar, and I'm hoping that he was joking, but some, there might be some folks out there who do not know that Arnold is in this movie.
0: Oh, I, that's got to be. There's no way. Yeah. I mean, he's in every poster. He's in every... That's a big selling point because they want... Obviously, they want people to know, look, we're getting back Arnold and Linda Hamilton, yeah. getting and them the back is, together.
1: The movie is a lot of fun, and it's and it's kind of you know, a breakneck action, and then you do get to the scene where Arnold and Linda Hamilton are in... a scene together, and the two of them are hilarious together. She's so mad, and he's just deadpan hysterical. That
0: is the funny thing, because first of all, and I was one of them, we talked about it before we saw the movie, I thought, well, how are they going to get out of a few things? First of all, that Arnold's Terminator has aged, that's one little thing you got to get around, and then after, if you remember how T2 left off... Okay, well, what happened because the last time they were together, he was a protector, um, and I know it's going to be a different model and all that. So there's a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, let's just say this movie deals with those questions very well. It does, and it really
1: well, well very yeah. well. It doesn't feel like it's just oh, we got to quickly write around right. this. I mean, it really feels. It, I I really loved yeah. actually not just how they answered those questions, but then what they did with his character was oh my so Lord. funny because
0: he's not there right away. Uh, they end up finding him later, and he's been living. <laughs> He's, I swear I'm not making this up. We said this today when we were on our, our, our TV gig with uh, Sean and Phil in Good Day Columbus. We said, I swear I'm not making this up. He's been living a quiet life as Carl selling draperies. Yeah,
1: and I think and, we should stop with, like, not say anything else because we don't want to get, but right. The, what, he's just priceless.
0: He really is. Uh, he's just a stone-faced hoot because he still has that real emotionless yeah. you know because he's a terminator. <laughs> and where they take the character is is so great and fresh. It has it certainly doesn't have that really smart ass vibe of Deadpool, but just a little bit in that direction, right, you know.
1: Right. And and you know, that would have been ill fitting. I yeah. think the oh, to go full agree. Deadpool. Agree. But but they do have enough smart acidness and almost all the characters get a couple of lines and then they all deliver it quite well and I think the performance is They're very solid. They are. You know, I mean, they they carve real human characters. I mean, except Schwarzenegger, because, I mean, he's not supposed
0: to. And, of course, once everybody gets back in the saddle, including... You got Sarah Connor next to the the Terminator that we know and love just blasting right beside each other. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's an incredible rush of nostalgia for movie characters that we're really invested in and haven't seen together in so many years. It's a blast. Yeah.
1: And, you know, the last three were such disappointments. They were such disappointments. And, you know, and a couple of them, you know, there was reason to have some hope because of the cast or because of whatever. But wisely, this film disregards those last three entirely. And you know what? You can do that in a time loop movie. You can. <laughs> we you and I were talking about that this morning. Right. It's like, you can well, there's it. other universes. There's other futures. Yeah. And that's, you know what? That's a that's a really good point they make in this movie. Right. You are always writing your own future.
0: Exactly. And that's that's one thing that you just don't have to worry about. Just know that this one, all you need to know is after T2, that's what we're dealing with here. Yep. Those characters and those repercussions. Are, right. Always rewriting the future. And the script, you know, in in an action movie, in a thrilling action movie like this, it's to me, it was a big surprise, not only the humor, but how heady and smart the script is. And it's by a team of David S. Goyer, Justin Rhodes, and Billy Ray. And they all three have some, they got some some, uh, credits in there. Oh, yes. There's some good stuff. But I really liked how... It deals with... You you said, first of all, you said that all the characters have an arc. They do. Yeah. You care about them. And it also brings in some topical themes like immigration, like border security, like... uh the handmade tale sort of environment for women. Yeah. Things like that. And it's almost like, one thing I thought of, it's almost like because you've got this War Horse franchise that you're reviving, mm-hmm. we just saw them do it to another uh, War Horse franchise, but it's almost like these writers did some time traveling, saw the script for Rambo Last Blood, and thought, you know what, we can update our franchise and not make it offensive.
1: Right. <laughs> And, you know, it's not to say that it's super heavy handed in, its, no, it's, in its politics. It really isn't. And you might think that it is, given that, you know, from the poster, three of the four leads are female. And I, And I just think that it's handled quite
0: well. It really is. And it's going to give you the thrills. It's going to give you laughs. It's going to give you that that nostalgic feeling. I mean, I can't really imagine how you'd view it if you hadn't seen Terminator one or two. I don't know. But I think it'd still be a satisfying action movie. You I just, think
1: so too, right? Yeah. Because again, because first of all, the script is very smart, and as you said, though the the action is is great, it really, really is. And but who hasn't seen? I, I don't know. At least the, at least the second one. And also outside
0: of two or three of these, I call them hyper jumps, where mm-hmm. the where the new Terminator is jumping tall buildings. Yeah. Outside of two or three of those, the effects look great,
1: uh, especially as you you were saying. An early de-aging scene is yes. pretty spectacular.
0: I mean, we talked about there was much ballyhoo about the de-aging in, in Gemini Man. The de-aging that they do here just blows that out of oh, the water. it really does. It really, it's really amazing. does. amazing. It is just amazing. So there's really so much to recommend about this movie. All right, there's a couple of clunky clunky sections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not perfect. But I'll tell you, as a getting into the holiday season blockbuster, just all-around crowd-pleaser. Man, it's hard to go wrong. I thought it was a darn good time. Agreed. Next up, one that's been getting a lot of conversation. It's the story of a young boy in Hitler's army finding out his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home, Jojo Rabbit. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. come in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to
1: burn some books! Yeah! Growing up too fast, 10-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics.
0: Hi uh, Hitler, I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism.
1: <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. Well, that description makes it seem like it might be a serious film. <laughs> and it's not. It's hilarious. Yes, it's
0: getting some controversy because of the subject matter, but it's also getting some really good buzz. Well, it
1: won the Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival, Mm -hmm. and it's hard for me to picture somebody watching this movie and not enjoying it, even almost despite themselves. So it's uh, it's a little boy in the Hitler Youth, or he'd like to be, right? And it's it's the tail end of World War II. And so it's hard to still feel good about being a Nazi. And that's the thing right Right there. Taika Waititi not only directed it, but, but he wrote based on a novel. He wrote the screenplay. It is so subversive and smart. It's unbelievable, but in a way that's so... Kiwi filmmakers have a... Ha- I don't think anybody has nailed wry and silly simultaneously the uh-huh. way that they have. And and that's what this movie is because this little boy who lacks some self-confidence... Yeah, he's
0: played by Roman Griffin Davis. Oh my God, he's so good. And he's Jojo.
1: Jojo. Jojo lacks self-confidence and it's bolstered by his imaginary friend, Adolf. <laughs> and so what did uh, uh plays Hitler, the imaginary friend of Jojo Rabbit, and it's just priceless. In
0: such a... A silly Mel Brooksish manner.
1: Right. Although, and I've got to say, though, that the movie mines some serious territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really does. And one of the things that... It, I, the script is incredibly smart. The direction is outstanding. And the performance is... Just shut up. So you don't just have that adorable little boy. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson is magnificent. Sam Rockwell is as he always is. He's so, so, so good. And then Tom Thomas and Mackenzie. Yes. Who was so good in Leave No Trace. So good. I've been waiting to see her yeah. again because yeah. she's so good. And she plays, uh she plays the little girl who is hiding in their house. Elsa, and, yeah. Elsa. And she's, you know, it's funny, uh, even more now than in Leave No Trace, she reminds me of a young Jodie Foster. Okay. And she's just wonderful. And most of the film is really those two, the two young actors working off of each other. And by the way, if you haven't
0: seen Leave No Trace, and I know it probably slipped through the cracks for a lot of people, it was what, two years ago now? I think it was last year. So good.
1: It's so good.
0: Look it up. So good. Anyway. uh, Yeah. And this is a case where it's a type of movie, satire like this. It's so hard to do effectively, but when it's done effectively, it is such a thing to behold.
1: And, and that's the thing, is that um, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I cannot think of a film that pulls satire off with this kind of panache.
0: You know what it reminds me of? Remember all those years of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart? They tried, some other network tried to do a right-leaning version. sure. And they couldn't do it now because Jon Stewart's and and to a pretty much to an extent still now with Trevor Noah they do such a great brand of it. It's crazy. It, it's so good. And then other not everybody can do it. Right. A- and you know what? Honestly, not everybody appreciates it. No, it's true. But, but it's done so well here, and we urge you to appreciate it. Next up is the extraordinary tale of Harriet Tubman's escape from slavery and transformation into one of America's greatest heroes. It's called Harriet.
1: There's not much time. You got to be miles away from here before dawn. Where is she? Follow that North Star. If there are no stars, just follow the river. Listen for them. Fear is your enemy. Whoa, easy now. I'm gonna be free or die.
0: You know how extraordinary this is, but you have made it 100 miles to freedom all by yourself. Would you like to pick a new name to mark your freedom?
1: Harriet Tubman. You said right from the beginning, from the posters in particular, that this looked like it was going to be Harriet Tubman as superhero, and we were all behind that Mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it takes a bit to get to that. I'm not going to say it suffers from hero worship, but it definitely, that's there, the hero worship. But when you think about what this human being accomplished, it's hard not to see her as a superhero.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, and even beyond what you may or may not have been taught in school. Right. Um, I mean, I remember just from getting the story of the Underground Railroad, but still, it was pretty glossed over. Absolutely. There's a lot of things we weren't taught. Let's be pretty clear about (laughs) that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and uh, and she's played by Harriet Tubman is played by Cynthia Arrivo. and and it was a controversial choice to begin with because she's not American mm-hmm. uh, and which uh, on the one hand seems kind of funny because uh, I don't think we ever choose Americans to play our heroes like Lincoln <laughs> I mean we never do so I'm not sure why this should be different but that's okay um, and even when he's hunting vampires that's that right. Lincoln?
0: I mean... <laughs> they never have Americans
1: play American heroes but she you know she's proven herself in a couple of other films already to be a a formidable talent. Yeah, and she's one of those that... She's a bit of a chameleon. She can really change her look. I mean, you might have seen
0: her in um, Bad Time at the El Royale. Right. She was the singer. Yep. Uh, and then you might have, you might, yeah, then Widows. Widows. She really looked totally different and took on a totally different persona.
1: And she does again here. Yes,
0: in those two movies. So yeah, she she can bring it.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and the thing about the film is that, I mean, it does. I mean, it absolutely does deliver a sort of hero worship kind of a story. And again, I'm not knocking it for doing that. But one of the reasons that it works is because of the central performance. Because the truth is, I think in a lot of cases, especially with like... With these historical figures, it's it's difficult to get past the idea that you are imitating somebody that we've all learned about. But as you're saying, we didn't learn enough about Harriet Tubman. Right. We really didn't. So I think that Arrivo's uh, uh, obstacle was in taking somebody who could be this obstinate, this fearless, this savvy, right, a- and turn her into a human, like a flawed, faulty human. Mm-hmm. And what she does instead is to turn her into somebody that we believe could accomplish this. And that's what I think is the amazing thing, is that this is so hard to believe that anybody could do this. But at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, no, she totally, like, she'll make you a believer. Yeah, and the point we've made many times about
0: other films, let's not, again, this this is not a documentary, okay? Right. So they're going to, you can find. They're going to collapse a timeline, and they're going to give
1: people uh, personalities that they may or may not have had. That's right.
0: Right, and that's always going to happen, and that's okay, because this is not a documentary, but yeah... Your point is, I I like the the ambition of the the vision of yeah. the movie in treating her like that. The director and co-writer is Casey Lemon, right? Who's by you? Who's by you? But you might remember her back when she was uh, still mainly just an actor. She was Jodie Foster's best friend in Silence of the Lambs. Well, you know, I remember that. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> but she has gone on to be a, a filmmaker, and uh, she yeah, she not only uh, directs but she writes. So I do. I I love the ambition of just going for it and giving it that. Sort sort of treatment.
1: Yeah. Now, it's a big ensemble, and it would be, of course, because it's this huge historical epic, and not every performance and not, uh, is as strong, well, obviously, as strong as hers, but not every performance is particularly strong, and not every character is particularly well fleshed out. So there are certainly some flaws to the film, no question, but it looks great. The way that it's filmed is very, uh, really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And also, one of the things that I appreciated about it, about Lemon's Direction in particular, is that... I feel like especially in in historical sagas that focus on slavery, I think that there can be a tendency to sort of wallow in an almost pornographic sense in the brutality brutality of Mm it. And and I I don't say that to knock other filmmakers. It's next to impossible to envision that manner of suffering, right? right? I mean, it's almost impossible to, to sort of communicate that level of suffering to an audience. And so sometimes I think, in an attempt to do it, even by very well-meaning filmmakers, it can feel exploitative and lurid. I got you. So Lemon's avoids that without completely avoiding it. You see scarred backs, but you don't dwell Linger, on uh-huh. it, right? Yeah. you're you, you know, there's mention of things like rape, but we, there isn't. There is no graphic rape scene. Right. And again, a lot of times that can that can sort of neuter a film. And I, what I think that this film does that a lot of other films of the era about the era don't do. This film is focused on. The urgency and agency to end slavery, and mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that really separates it from a lot of other films that depict slavery, and um, and it makes for a very exciting and urgent, almost uh, you know superhero yeah. type of film. I and mean, like, it's 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 borderline an action movie. Yeah,
0: with elements of a thriller in yeah, there as well. Exactly. So yeah, so that's another recommendation this week is Harriet. And the hits keep on coming this week. Next, it's the story of the unemployed Kim family taking peculiar interest in the wealthy and glamorous Park family for their livelihood until they get entangled in an unexpected incident parasite. Well, this is the latest from uh, a filmmaker that, whatever he does, you should see. It's a Korean filmmaker, Bong Joon-ho, and you might know him from *The Host*, or *Snowpiercer*, or *Mother*, or what am I leaving out?
1: Oh, *Memory of a Murder*. Yes. I mean, there are so many. There's so many, and 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 you're right. Uh, each one requires viewing. You need to see everything this, but this filmmaker makes. this one might be
0: the capper. This one is so so great. First of all, it's got to be a, a lock for at the very least getting nominated for uh, foreign language at the Oscars. I, I would think so. It's, it's so good. Um, it's such an interesting and well told story that has humor, uh, but it definitely has a rage behind it. It does because it's a story of the classes and the inequality between the wealthy and the poor the haves and the have-nots as this family through their oldest son gets into the house gets into the lives of these wealthy people and when you think about it that's the how they get in he becomes a, an english tutor to the richest to the rich family's daughter mm-hmm. and so that's really the only way in this social order that those families are going to connect you're going to work for them yeah exactly how else you're not going to be invited to their parties no And so once he's in, the hook is set.
1: We talked about this movie for days after we saw it. It is so incredibly well-written. And as soon as you think you have a grip on... Who's doing what and what the story is telling you and And what's about to happen. Right. Uh, Everything shifts. Everything shifts. And it happens three or four times in the movie. The entire everything you think you know has shifted into something else. I just can't get over how savvy the screenplay is and also the direction. And one of the things I love about the direction is these gorgeous wide shots that give you a sense of the size of the house and the size of the yard and the size of... Of the separation between the different people inside that world, it's just gorgeous and brilliant. Yeah,
0: I can't remember the. I always forget the actual numbers in in the different aspect ratios, but it's very wide. <laughs> it's a very wide aspect ratio that right lets you show the families also can let you show empty chairs sometimes at a big, long table of people who aren't there. And you can see these specifics of the two different worlds they live in. And it's fascinating. The performances are great, the direction, the writing, and how he slowly, he he dangles these different threads of the story and then comes back around and connects them. And even on the off chance, I think there was one that I kind of guessed at. It doesn't matter. Even if you guess... At at almost every one, it's still going to be so satisfying the way he connects them all yeah. on, the, on the way through this story. It's one of those that you're going to, much like we did, you're going to think about, you're going to talk about, and it's
1: it's such a head swimming ride. Oh yeah, it's just a it's just a masterful film and an unbelievable piece of filmmaking. Please, please do yourself a favor and see Paris. Yeah, and it's it's a, almost um, deceptively
0: smart about its social commentary. Oh, yeah. Because it's certainly entertaining you as it's a mystery. Right. As it's also funny. Right. You might think with with the lighter touch that it's not as serious as it really is, but it is.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because Jun Ho Bong has done primarily, his films have had at least a touch of, if not been outright science fiction, fantasy in them, you know, um, Okja, for example, um, or or Snowpiercer. But also, and in particular you can see in those two films, a very specific sort of view of society and uh, a specific sort of aim at making a statement about The Social Order. This film abandons sci-fi entirely. Mm -hmm. And it's also a much subtler and in the same way, much, I think, more razor sharp image of the
0: social order. Yeah, so sharp. And one of the best movies, foreign language or no, that we have seen this year. Absolutely. Do not miss Parasite. Okay, we'll go to some smaller release films now. This one, (laughs) this is a weird one. Uh, Suburban soccer moms find themselves constantly competing against each other in their personal lives as their little kids settle their differences on the field. It's called Greener Grass.
1: Would it be possible for me to get the baby I gave you back? I don't know, Jill. It doesn't hurt to ask, right? It did hurt. I didn't like it.
0: Julianne, wash up. Dinner's ready. No,
1: it's not. Is everything okay? Oh, my God.
0: Lisa, you're pregnant? Oh, my God. Jill, are you happy? I don't know.
1: Maybe you should get a divorce. Oh, yes. I have
0: to get out of here.
1: <laughs> out of bounds. This is a feature length of a short that was very popular and, and made a big splash at Sundance. Yeah, I
0: think 2015 is when it came out, and that one uh, was it was written by the stars, Jocelyn De Boer and Don Luby. And this time they also take over directing duties. So they wrote the screenplay they also star as the two main characters, and they're the directors as well. And this thing, I'll tell you what, it is like a a late night TV sketch just stretched out as far. <laughs> And just daring you. It's just like staring you in the face. Yep, that's what we're doing. (laughs) Yep, and we're still doing it. I mean, the dry nature of this absurdist comedy and and the way that they manufacture this just suburban hellscape of pastel colors and adult braces and children that turn into dogs and uh, (laughs) women that... uh, Put a a soccer ball up their dress, and then everybody says, Oh, you're pregnant! Congratulations! And just play that out, and never let it stop. It has some uproarious moments. It really does. I laughed out loud uh, several times. Now, to be honest, there are some stretches where uh, those laughs don't come as much, but they are so committed. The entire cast is so committed. And coincidentally enough, or I should say appropriately now, if we're talking about a late-night sketch, one of the cast members is Beck Bennett from Saturday Night Night Live. And that seems appropriate, because... It does. It's like one of those... You remember back in the day, that incredibly silly sketch with Dana Carvey, Massive Head Wound Harry? Sure. It's like they took that and said, No, we're going to make a Massive Head Wound Harry movie,
1: <laughs> and we're going to stick with that premise, and you're darn right, all the way. Well, it's funny. The other thing that it reminds me of a little bit is The Greasy Strangler, which I'm sure uh, yeah. not everybody has seen. And it's it's definitely a different film. Although the color scheme is a, a lot of, <laughs> in keeping. but But... They would have a sketch of one thing. Potato. I'm sorry. Could you right. say it again? Potato. Exactly. And it's like if you say something twice, it's funny. If you say something four times, it's not. If you say something fifteen times, it circles back around. Exactly.
0: And that's where this film lives. You're right. The look of it is like some John Waters creation of, sure. of this suburban area uh, meeting with a, a, a cheek that just refuses to acknowledge that the tongue is in there. <laughs> no, this is this is this is where we live. You know, my son is a dog now. Um, <laughs> And it has the makings, it really does. I don't know how many theaters it's going to be in or whatever, but it has the makings of a cult classic. Yep. I mean, the one kid's teacher is named Miss Human. <laughs> and that's her name. And so, you know, if one, if we ever hear somebody call, yeah, my, my son's teacher out of Miss Human, then th- <laughs> this movie will have a ride because I can see it having that sort of following once it gets out there. And if this is your thing, I think you will definitely uh, enjoy the dry absurdity of Greener Grass. Got a documentary next and a fascinating one at that. Roy Cohn personified the dark arts of American politics, turning empty vessels into dangerous demagogues from Joseph McCarthy to his final project, Donald Trump. This is called Where's My Roy Cohn? Roy Cohn's contempt for people, his contempt for the law, was so evident on his face that you knew you were in the presence of evil. Pull strings and bring people together. He could pull strings and make people do things.
1: Cone looked at Donald Trump as a protege. Donald had the money, and Roy had the balls and the shrewdness.
0: Attack. Don't settle. Don't apologize. Attack. When you look at Cone's life, you're shining a light on demagoguery, hypocrisy, and the darkest parts of the American psyche.
1: The title is actually a quote from Donald Trump, who was complaining to his White House staff that he didn't have a cutthroat, you know, sort of pit bull on his team anymore. And he wanted to know, where's my Roy Cohn? And that's what the film is about. And it's funny. What it made me think of was immediately made me think of horror franchises. Hmm. And how after you have a couple of successful horror films, then often you go back and do an origin story. So for a while, that's what this felt like to me. It felt like the origin story of a villain, of a supervillain, Roy Cohn. (laughs) Um, and, And because his effect... On American culture and American politics really is insidious yeah. it's impossible to change it's impossible to get to root out and in that way this film is kind of a must-see you sort of have to look at it to go oh that's why we're where we are Yeah,
0: it's fascinating scary yeah l- behind the scenes Bizarre. at someone who was just you just look at this this person and you just think he how can you just be so totally devoid of anything redeeming
1: yeah and because there are so many things that he's responsible for that were turning points in American culture and American history. For Starting exa- with the McCarthy. Well, uh, before that, even the Rosenbergs. Rosenbergs. That's he right. He was he was the prosecuting attorney, and he was the one who pushed for the death penalty for it was the first time in, the in a, baby trial. Yeah. The first time in American history that people were sentenced to death for treason in and they when it wasn't wartime. And by all accounts, at the very least, Mrs. Rosenberg, there, there was not nearly enough evidence to, right. conf- to convict her of anything. And yet he pushed for the death penalty, mainly not because he felt like it was necessary, as the documentary and Cohn himself made clear, but because it was really good for him, yeah. you know, and he just went on. It's amazing the the number of different times across sort of uh, the American Political spectrum, whenever there was a hard right turn, you're like, how did that happen, Roy Cohn? Mm-hmm. Then again, as, as you come to about halfway through toward the end of the film, you realize, I'm not sure that this is an origin story. I think it's the beginning of the sequel, the son of Roy Cohn, yeah. because then the, his last protege is Donald Trump, and you can just see step by step by step how not only Trump was created, but how our current political climate was created that allowed Trump to flourish in the way he has. Right. And it's it's incredibly informative. It's utterly bizarre, front to back, and it's just sickening. The film will make you sick.
0: That's the thing. It's certainly not a feel-good movie, but it's fascinating. It's one of those that you just can't take your eyes off of because of how utterly fascinating it is. Where's my Roy Cohn? And lastly this week, a horror movie, so we like that. Don Koch tries to renovate a rundown mansion with a sordid history for his growing family, only to learn that the house has other plans. It's called Girl on the Third Floor.
1: So how's the house coming along? It's been hard. Cooper! Certain places have personalities, and sometimes they're rotten. This house has a history of bringing out the worst in people
0: certainly creepy. You need to get out of here. Yeah,
1: what was that? What? I, ain't I hate what you've done with the place. I'm worried. Stop! Stop! You want my advice? Get your husband and your baby far away from that house. This is one we got a chance to see because it came to the Nightmares Film Festival. Yeah, just last week. Yeah, just a great, great celebration of genre film in Columbus, Ohio, every year. You should go. It's gotten a wider release this week, and it's also going to be available on digital here very shortly. It's a directing feature debut from... Travis Stevens who is an independent filmmaker producer who is responsible for a great number of really really good low budget but very solid independent horror films. And you can see where he has a, a quite a visual flair. He's got a good visual storytelling flair. I don't think that the story is as solid as it could be, but it definitely I think keeps your attention. It looks good, it's spooky, it's not scary mm. and it's not especially original and I feel like it's not quite as socially aware or relevant as it thinks it is. But CM Punk a a WWE superstar makes his debut as the lead in this film. And he shoulders almost the entire film. He is in almost every single scene. And the way that the movie is shot, he's front and center foregrounded. He's all half the time looking directly into the camera because of the sort of right. remodeling that he's doing. And, He's very impressive. He nice. does a really good job of really carrying the whole film. And a lot of the spooky stuff that happens it is interesting. It is it's going to keep you compelled. It's not a masterpiece, but it's a good movie.
0: Yeah, and that's girl on the third floor. And that means we head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby.
1: Let's all go to the lobby.
0: Two interesting films this week in the lobby. We start with Loose. I don't know how many people saw this. Not too many. But boy, if you did, you will think about it and you will talk about it. It's provocative.
1: It really, it really, really is. And it's another one where the ground just shifts beneath you the farther along Mm -hmm. you get. It's very, very well directed. And the performances across the board, just stunning.
0: Yeah, young Melvin Harrison from uh, It Comes at Night. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. And he is loose, being raised by adoptive parents, Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. Mm -hmm. And uh, Octavia Spencer's in there, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's one of those where maybe he's not what everybody thinks he is. He's the golden boy of his high school, and he's uh, weathered a tragic upbringing. uh, But maybe he's not all that,
1: or maybe he is. Well, and the Uh, other thing, though, that I love the most about this is the further you get into the film... Maybe neither is anybody else what they are presenting themselves as being. Exactly. And I think that's where the film derives its power.
0: Yeah, exactly. And brings up a lot of very, very timely issues. Doesn't bring them up to solve them. No. But brings them no. up so we can confront them. Yeah. And uh, it's worth seeing loose. Also, Them That Follow is out this week. Another small movie about Appalachian snake handlers. Yes. And the daughter of the pastor of this small community. Walton Goggins. He was so good. He was. He's the, uh, he's the pastor Lemuel. And it's his daughter who comes across um, a choice that she has to make that will alter a lot of lives. I thought it was really solid. The first two-thirds were really better than the resolution. I thought the resolution seemed a little tidy, a little tidy, but some great characters. And leading up to that, some some great uh, themes woven in there before they kind of... Got, get all the loose ends uh, tied up as quickly as possible. But it's still worth seeing, I think, oh, for them that follow. Next week, another big week. Got some uh, big movies coming out, including one that we just saw the other night, Doctor Sleep.
1: Yeah. The
0: sequel to The Shining. Now, we neither one of us had read the book, so I had no, no idea where it was going. No, I didn't either. And consequently, we don't know how it how it differs from right. the book. or but, measures up. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, But we <laughs> certainly love The Shining, so we were happy to get back to The Overlook. We'll talk more about that next week. Also, Midway comes out. I uh, don't know if it's an actual remake of the one from the 70s or just sharing the title, but we'll find out. Another one we just watched the other night, Primal. Nicolas Cage. He's on a cargo
1: ship full of wild animals.
0: You bet he is. <laughs> Darn right he is. Also, uh, Last Christmas, the first of the big holiday releases, and uh, John Cena and Keegan-Michael Key are firemen having to deal with little kids mm-hmm. in playing with fire. That all comes out next week as well. So until then, boy, there's a lot to talk about. A lot of great movies worth diving into more uh, this week. So if you want to do that, get in touch with us uh, on Twitter and talk about any of these. Uh, you can find us, Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F on Twitter. Also on Instagram and Facebook, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And as always, all the written reviews and other fun stuff like Fright Club. Our uh, horror-only podcast, which will feature special guest Elvira this week. That's right. We got to talk to Elvira. Not only talk to her, but get this. We talked to her on Halloween.
1: That's right. And for for us to talk to Elvira on Halloween, it'd be like for a normal person to talk to Santa on Christmas.
0: (laughs) So that's fun. That'll be the latest Fright Club podcast. So all that you can find on the main website. Which is madwolf.com. But as always, thank you for stopping by the screening room.
1: And wherever it is you happen to be listening, and we want to thank, by the way, Alex from Gateway Film Center, who is a listener now, and he left us a review. So you should do like Alex does and <laughs> s- subscribe,
0: rate, and review. One of those little memes of the stick person. Do like be, Alex does. Be like Alex. That's right. Yes, thank you so much. So <laughs> until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the screening room podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but. I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.